This is The Bottom Line, a show designed to help Australian businesses succeed. On the show, you'll hear from leading Australian business owners as they share the lessons they've learned building their companies. You'll learn from their successes as well as some of the challenges they faced along the way. We also talk to experts from a range of fields who share specialised techniques you can use to improve your business. I'm your host, Savan Chuna, and I'm a director at Alexander Spencer, and I'm really passionate about helping Australian businesses succeed. Today, we're speaking with Dean Arnold. Dean is the founder and CEO of Public Square, a fintech company in the rent-to-own home industry. In today's episode, Dean takes us through the journey of founding Public Square and expanding Public Square over time. You'll learn what rent-to-own home is, how it works, and the role of technology and innovation in the property space. Dean shares his advice for aspiring tech entrepreneurs, managing investors, and the importance of scalability in a startup. Let's jump in. Hi, Dean. Thank you so much for joining me on The Bottom Line today. For those that don't know you, can you please tell us a little about yourself? Yeah, thanks for um, having me. So I'm Dean. I'm uh, based in Australia between uh, Brisbane and Sydney. I am an early stage fintech founder and CEO, and I've founded a company called Public Square. We are a fintech company operating in the rent-to-buy real estate space in Australia. I should say the rent-to-buy 2.0 because a lot of people know that rent-to-buy has been around for a long time, but not the way we're doing it. And I've been building uh, startups and companies for near on 15 years now. When COVID happened, I was living in Hong Kong. I'd been in Hong Kong and Shanghai for about nine years. And I was prematurely forced to come back to Australia, but it was a good thing because I had a, I was able to sell my business at the time and have a really deep think and do some real experimentation before I decided to uh, come back here and start working on this current company. Awesome. Really quickly, Hong Kong, Shanghai. So what were you there for before you started Public Square? Well, I had a few companies, um, but the main one was an e-commerce big data slash IP company. So we would basically do high frequency scanning of all the uh, major e-commerce platforms, mainly uh, mainland China. And in the early days, there were loads and loads of e-commerce platforms sort of vying for competition. So we had to scan dozens of these sites and, and produce all this data for our clients through like a SaaS platform. But over the years, it sort of became only one or two two big platforms in the end. So the question is, is can you speak Mandarin Cantonese? It's getting a bit rusty, not Cantonese, like nothing Cantonese-wise. Mandarin, um, obviously. Mandarin a bit, yeah. I can speak taxi knees. Ah. <laughs> you see some of those guys online. I've seen one Australian lady that speaks like awesome Mandarin <laughs> and it's it's funny watching her, watching the reaction of the locals of this white girl speaking Mandarin. It's amazing. So... Let's talk about Public Square. You came back to Australia due to obvious reasons and then you founded Public Square. How does an entrepreneur find a problem and then find a solution for it? Was it something you always wanted to do? How did you come up with this as a business, as a, as a fintech startup? In my 20s, I was really passive about the problems and the companies that I worked on. It was just, here's an idea. I can do it. Bam, I've already got some connection or an opportunity. Let's do it. But over the years, I sort of realized it's not, not the way to build a business. You make all your progress in the decision, and then the execution is necessary. But really, you have to take stock and 
think deeply about what you're going to work on and who you're going to work on it with and who you're going to bring along for the ride. So through COVID, I just sold my company. I had plenty of time to think about what I really wanted to do next. And I took a really macro framework when deciding to work on this rent-to-buy homes company. And really, it came down to um, you know, the realization that doing hard tech is sort of too hard. There's really only maybe less than a thousand serious world-class engineers in the world that can do hard tech. And if you're not one of them, and I'm not, then what are you going to do? You're probably wasting your time, especially if you're going to be trying to do that in Australia. And I've had the experience of working on hard tech problems before and, and working with world-class talent. And as soon as they're gone, you're in detail. <laughs> and, then the, and then the other side, and why would they work for you? If they're a one in a thousand talent, they're going to go off and do their own thing. So on the other side, soft tech is sort of too easy. It's easily replicated. Uh, there's just too many tools available now that just make it easier than ever to work on all these soft. And a lot of these businesses are just becoming commoditized. You're doing anything in e-commerce, you're doing anything in SaaS. Well, now you've got no code, low code for SaaS, which is amazing what you can do. And actually, probably that's my best proficiency, learning how to use all these tools and leverage all these tools. So what are you left with? If it's not soft tech and hard tech, you know, you could call it IP or a political advantage or, or maybe even better ownership. So you want to have ownership in something. So your customers can't churn, your business partners can't churn. You can build a long-term business without this fear of technical overhead or being replaced by the, the next best product. Also in software, if you're doing something on that soft side, then you've always got legacy problems because every 12 months, there's a better tool stack to use. And I did see this coming with ChatGPT and all the AI tool. I mean, there's a lot of people having to make some hard decisions now and decide if, if they really have a viable business going ahead in the software space. So, so Public Square is um, unique in that way. It's a very viable business because it's in property and requires you know, hard assets and capital and whatnot. It's, it's not the hottest business. I don't worry about people you're replicating the business or the next developer you know, copying the, the next hot thing. And it just provides something that's just so fundamental to the Australian way of life. And it's just always in the news cycle. That's where it all really started. And I was interested in this kind of rent-to-buy model. I didn't know that other companies were doing it. I was just kind of you know, dreaming up different kinds of uh, property models for a number of years as I was thinking about ways to sort of put my own money to work in Australia. You know, I looked at Airbnb models and how they would scale up and how I could do something innovative. That way, I, I looked at these kind of shared equity models and they didn't make sense much at all. But, but the rent-to-buy was just a really interesting hedge that, that really seemed to provide a lot of value for all the participants in the model. So for those that don't know rent-to-buy, just really briefly, what is rent-to-buy? So our brand of rent-to-buy is a bit different. The old, I guess it makes sense to explain the old way first. The old way was developers, flippers, they'd have a limited number of homes, they were struggling to sell the property. So they'd come up with this way to sort of, let's say, lower quality or, or people with bad credit into the space. And they'd sell them a home, usually over market value, and then come what may with those. They've sold the home, ultimately they own the property. But in our model, we let the customers choose their own home. They pay a 2.5%, what we call Kickstarter contribution. They move into the home technically as renters, and then they pay a higher than market rental rate per week. But 40% of that amount that they pay accrues into what we call a purchase offset, which is essentially a deduction on the final purchase price of the home. So it's kind of powerful because the customers are, um, are in a model that allows it. It's like a forced saving mechanism in an appreciating asset. And that's one of the lines I, I heard from um, 
this famous founder in the US for a company called Divi Homes, which really pioneered this rent to buy 2.0 model. And now, you know, they're a huge company now that they're, they're closing, you know, near on 30 homes a day. They're backed by Andreessen Horowitz, um, you know, very well established company. They're in the Valley. And that's what she said. And, you know, just going back to your former question, when I heard a podcast with her, with Jason Calacanis in uh, Startups Weekly before he had this new one that I listened to. I heard that podcast and I'd been turning this idea over in my head and I had a few models and sheets and I was thinking about it a lot as, as the potential next business. I, was, I heard that interview and I was just blown away. I was blown away because I didn't know someone else was doing it. And then I realized that it was working so well in the US, helping so many people. And the timing was just perfect in Australia for doing this. And in fact, in the US... You can still buy a home for $200,000 Australian or $250,000. I mean, because you have, you have those options there. And on top of that, you also have a, a much wider range of mortgage products, which we don't have here. And their income to home ratio is like almost half of what it is for us here. So only buying a home now in Australia over the last couple of decades, theoretically so much harder in Australia, although we do have cheaper healthcare and these other you know, pressure relievers for household finances here that they don't have in the U.S., that's true, but still, if the product was working in that well and has been working so well in the U.S. for a number of years, then you know the basic premise was it should work incredibly well. And I think the demand that we've experienced has kind of proved that the problem is enormous here, and that the demand and the willingness to pay for this kind of product is also here in Australia. Yeah, it's a it's, you're solving an awesome problem. I've got obviously you know a lot of clients in our accounting firm, and and some of the older ones that have got kids that are sort of getting to that teenager things. The most common thing that my clients tell me that have got kids, if I don't help my kids, I don't know how they're going to ever be able to afford a home. That sentence is actually said to me or by my older clients that have got kids on a regular basis. So first and foremost, thank you for helping those kids eventually buy a home because in a way what I liked about what you said there is it's saving that deposit. For you it's 2.5%. Yes, you pay above market rent. But if you own your own home, you need to save. You need to be able to have a position to save. So you have to still do all the things you need to do to be able to own a home. But it allows that person to get in in an appreciating asset, which is really awesome. So tell us about public school and how you do it and how do we get into getting the solution for the consumer? Well, we're focused on the, the user experience. So we're doing what a fintech company should do. It doesn't matter if you're a renter or a buyer or you're, you're coming into a rental or coming into buy a property, but the experience is pretty terrible all around, no matter how, how you look at it. So when I first started, I, I just wasn't sure about the demand. I thought, okay, is this going to be you know, predominantly low socioeconomic families, disadvantaged households? You know, is it an alternative to like an NDIS program? Is it something like that? Still has merit, but it probably wouldn't be something that I'd, I'd want to build a business out in that space. And what I found really quickly was that it's not exclusive to just the first-time home buyers or just blue collar. This is a problem, you know, not being able to save a, a home loan deposit or let's say not wanting to wait five to 10 years to save a home loan deposit is, applies to just about everybody. There's certain groups that it's, you know, more difficult for, but I think you, you hit the nail on the head when you say the one thing that uh, everyone aligns is if you don't have money from someone else, from your parents, if they're not willing to sort of cash out some equity in their own home or, or just put up the cash for a 10 or 20% deposit, then you're always going to have this problem at the moment, you know, with the cost of real estate here and the cost of living. So 
the way we do it is we just have a really uh, efficient onboarding process, nice, easy to use forms, a lot of automation in the beginning to sort of get you to a pre-approval and, and let you know you're buying power. And then we, uh, we connect them to an application manager who takes the process forward. And then, you know, it's really just like a, really just like a mortgage application process or really, you know, involved rental application process. Once they're fully approved, we actually go out, they go out and choose the property that they like in the open market. So it's not select like these cheapy little homes in 300 kilometers from a major city. It's actually, they go and choose the home that they want. A lot of the alternative home buying platforms and products in Australia have tried sort of signing cookie cutter properties to people. So they've taken this kind of platform approach where they're all they're really doing is arbitraging the agency fee away, selling properties over market value, making their money out front and then just walking away. There's no ongoing relationship there, which isn't really appealing. And, you know, that was part of the problem with, you know, the negative connotations about the old rent to buy homes model. So, so we're saying go to the open market, choose your own home the way you normally would. Give us a short list. We will vet the property as buyer's agents, right? So you sort of, this turned out to be a much bigger um, value add for customers than we originally thought it would be. But we will act like your buyer's agents. We will thoroughly vet this property, handle all negotiation, building pests. We will negotiate very hard with the current owner of the property to make sure that you get the best possible starting price. And then, you know, once everything checks out, we will buy the property ourselves. So we are basically the investor, the owner, and we hold the properties and we are the platform and the agency as well. You acquire the property. Do you settle? So let's say I pick a house, call it 800 grand. I like it. You like it. You vetted me already. Now it's time to settle. You want to do the deal. I don't have the funds because I'm going to an arrangement to rent to buy. You then settle with the vendor 800 grand. Your company does or your structures do, correct? Yeah, correct. Okay. So then you own the property and then the rent to buy is between the applicant that you vetted and yourself. Yeah. We are the lessor. They are the lessee. You're the property Um, owner. We're the property manager as well. Yes, correct. So keep going. So now I'm in the property. I'm, I've, so we've settled. You've settled. I'm in the house. So take us through the next steps of the journey. So I'm now in the house. How does What happens next? Well, technically you're a renter. Yeah. But you have an option to buy the property. You all has, also have the option to request a sale on the property if something goes wrong. So in which case we'll sell the property in the open market. We'll try to return as much as your, the, you know, your equity contributions that you've made to date. And then you can walk away sort of debt-free out of the property. Once uh, you're ready to buy the property, which you can do after two years, you can use the equity contributions that you build up through our model as a less deduction on the final settlement of sale. So you're basically building up a discount on the final purchase price and the purchase price is fixed. So you know exactly what that's going to be in the future. And the way we calculate that future purchase price is by uh, compounding 3% Interest uh, plus some fees on the back end just to cover some of the costs of, of the transaction. Okay, so if the market, and this can happen for our overseas listeners in Australia, the market could move quick. Um, so if the market has gone 20%, so you bought it for 800, now three years later worth a mil, you don't go, hey, oh, hold on, let's sell. it's a million dollars as a price. You still follow your model at 3%. The buy yep. price might be 860 or whatever, 840, less than, okay, wow. Is that correct? Yeah. Yeah. That's and amazing. thank you for taking the most positive example. Of this because <laughs> most, most people start off by saying, oh, what if the market does, you know, performs less than 3%? 
In which case I say, well, that really hasn't happened in any 10 year period over the last, since forever, basically. Yeah, um, yeah. So, but you're right. The financial upside belongs to the customer. We're basically, we're a business where we're trying to have predictability and earn a predictable or fixed fees in the beginning. So we're managing our risk, but at the same time, you know, giving the best possible price to our customers. Do you help them getting the finance and do you support them in that part at all? Or is that sort of, they get ready, they go to a broker themselves. How does that all work? Yeah, when they're ready to exercise their purchase option, um, they can use any broker or lender of their choice. And that process for them is just going to be like buying their first home or, or buying any home. We may look to offer some more assistance there. I mean, we can certainly help the customers get mortgage ready by making sure they've got all the paperwork in place and you know they can prove a good rental history and things like that. But yeah, at a later date, we may also build in a panel of lenders. We may, you know, do referrals to brokers. I'm not sure how that play out, but I guess we've still got a few years until the first cohort of customers are ready to um, ready yeah. exercise their purchase option. So for such a young business, tell us some of the challenges that you've faced getting this off the ground. So I'm assuming it wouldn't have been smooth sailing from day one. Talk us through some challenges and, and how you've potentially overcome them. Well, with the current structure for the business, it's very capitally intensive. So, you know, rate, obviously raising money, you know, trying to prove to creditors that this is a worthwhile business to back and, to, you know, to step outside your, your normal policies or plain vanilla lending to get involved. I think that's the biggest challenge. And, and generally, the demand side for us is, is not something I spend a lot of time on now because there just seems to be unlimited demand for the product. It's really all the challenges are on the supply side. And there's two, there's two ways to solve that. There's raise a bunch of money, uh, economize your cost of capital over time. Maybe you have to take some hurt money in the beginning, but then you build up that use case, that proof of concept, and you can bring the cost of capital down over time. Or the other way is to sort of innovate, build more of a platform, build strategic partnerships, see what sticks there, and then double down on this innovative side, which may not be capitally intensive at all. And then you can just build your business around an engineering team and a marketing and distribution team and that sort of thing that most tech companies would prefer to be doing. So tell us the tech. So what what's the technology? What's so innovative? I mean, obviously you've got a platform that brings people together. I think the solution, what you've created, this rent to buy, what you've, this point two is really, really good. And I can see a massive use case for it. But where's the technology? Where's the innovation in all of this? Well, if we're talking software, I mean, there's not much to it. There's really onboarding application, automation, just making a really smooth, nice, you know, online experience for customers to, you know, get us all the information and then get pre-approved, get fully approved, deal with us, get customers, all that stuff. Not really that difficult. But if you think about technology in terms of like how the platform and the product works and in the innovation being the technology, then I think that, you know, the lease agreement that we have, which is kind of, you know, the, the combination of two years of learning and refining and thinking about all the scenarios and edge cases and, and making it fair and equitable and, and, and making it, giving us the ability to sort of bring different participants into this model. That's really the technology that we have. Um, and then there's also, you know, stuff that we've had to build that just didn't exist in the property management space. Like we had to build our own trust accounting software and platform, for example, not easy to do. Mm. Uh, <laughs> in fact, in fact, we almost built out a whole separate software platform here that we could probably market and sell. resell. And I, almost, I was tempted to get in touch with some orders and say, "Hey, would you like to like use this platform that we built, and you could 
give it to your customers for free and they can save a thousand bucks on Rex or whatever. And, yeah, it is. And you it can is use a pain. it. <laughs> All these extra examples that we've had to build uh, internally, you know, like there isn't none of those property management softwares have any any way of sort of calculating the equity that our customers have built up or sending them a, a statement that mm. gives them an updated view of that. So we're just basically using software to automate, streamline, fix all the internal issues and all the user experience points, um, endpoints for our customer. And then we also have a running list of like all the you know A to Z steps that we have to take in every you know, property acquisition and every you know customer onboarding. It's about 80 steps through the whole process. And it, it acts like a dev roadmap for us as well. It's like, here's a bottleneck. This one can be fixed. This can be automated. We actually don't need a human in the loop here. And that's what I like working on the weekends more than during the week because I can actually have this kind of impact like building software and automation for the business rather than, you know, picking up phone calls. I think that's a big thing. We're an accounting firm here. That's our core business. And that's something that we look at all the time. And we're looking at, at our current software stack because we've got a few softwares in our platform, in our, what we, how we do our business. And some of them are just so ancient. It doesn't allow us to do those automation and cut out processes. So it's a big part of our journey at the moment where we're looking at every single thing that we do. We haven't refined it down to the 80 steps. I would be horrendous to know how many steps we take to do some of our things. But what you've been able to illustrate there is every business has processes and systems and you've used innovation to cut them down. But then also looked at it from a customer experience perspective on how it then looks from their side. So that's that's awesome. Do you see any other innovative changes that's going to happen in the property space it's sort of bricks and mortar and it's very sort of you know what you saw what bricks and mortar was now to what it was 10 or 15 years ago there's realestate.com that's played a big change in in, yeah. in, in, in the market I, there was a lot of things going on at one stage where people were going to cut out agencies and you know i think there was this purple website i can't remember what it was called where you could list purple your bricks. Own, that's the one purple bricks and trying to build that i don't know if that's still around what do you see in this property space that is going to be disruptive in the coming years well one really big picture idea that i I don't know if I've heard anyone float before. Maybe one friend of mine sort of planted the seed, but he, I think real estate is actually going to get completely turned on its head over the next 10 to 15 years. I agree. And it comes down to mainly uh, self-driving cars because in 10 to 15 years, when yourself, you know, your self-driving Tesla can get you into the city in 20 minutes without any traffic and you can spread out and recline and have your coffee and scroll for the news rather than, you know, the hellish one hour commute or whatever and all the costs involved, and it also becomes dramatically cheaper. Why are you going to spend a million and a half dollars for a crappy townhouse in a metro? Why are you going to do that? You're not. So the valuation of these homes are really going to change a lot. We're not really buying super in, in a city at the moment now either. So I think our customers are going to be a benefit from this trend if they're still in their homes in 10 to 15 years as well because they're, they're mainly buying bigger blocks. 40 minutes away, you know, nicely, you know, landscaped, you know, Stockland-esque communities, those kind of properties. But, you know, it was a big shock to the system with COVID and all the, all the turnover, the commercial, right? Yeah. I think this will be even bigger. I think that's the one thing that people need to really keep in mind because paint me a picture where this, this doesn't happen in the future. You're going to be working from home and, and that experience is going to be better. That augmented experience is going to be better than being in the room with people. 
Well, it's going to be interesting. The space is really – look, there's so many things going on with the AI place, with the augmented reality, the Web3 stuff happening. So I think we're going to be in a very different world, Dean, and uh, you're obviously a big player in innovating and bringing something new. What are some other advice would you give? So you are obviously ran lots of businesses and you've started this one. It's an early journey. If I was a tech startup, wanted to start a tech business, what advice would you have for me so that I have the most possible chance of success? Don't spend money. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's it. Just like get it up and running for zero dollars because that's what you should be doing. Like as the moment you have a burn, the moment you're on the hook and you're fully stressed out. <laughs> how, how do you and, do that though? How do you do it for nothing? Is that just self-sufficient code writing using freelancers that will do it for sweat equity? What, how do you do it for nothing? Maybe it was a non-starter 10 years ago. But now you've got all this leverage, all these tools. When I say nothing, you know, maybe a thousand bucks a month. Yeah. Tops for all your tools and, you know, not paying any other employees. If you're going to bring a co-founder in and you're working, willing to work for free and they're not, then maybe you should have a rethink of yeah. that because that's going to be a stressful part of your relationship. So, yeah, I mean, just getting to an MVP, getting some traction, proving that it works before you start spending money. I'm not sure if you did this on your own and had investors, um, but if you did have investors and you got a lot of capital needs in your business, firstly, do you have investors and what advice do you give to tech startups that have to then manage investors? So, I mean, my track record with investors has been kind of hit and miss. Ah, okay. Well, there you go, the perfect person <laughs> so, to answer. Sometimes it's been, I mean, sometimes it's been, you know, very organic and natural to bring on investors for certain things. And then sometimes, you know, you play ping pong for months and everything's really, really great. Just talking to a founder um, a couple of weeks ago, had a had a, a really positive looking business and should have worked really well, but he kind of got on the hook with an investor and 12 months of promises and yes, we're going to do it before they pulled out and, you know, they, they weren't able to, you know, readjust their business in time to get ahead of that and it, and it ruined the business, right? So I think the best thing is just being realistic about what you can actually achieve and what kind of investors. I talked to a few of the sort of techie VCs in this space. I probably wasted a couple of months speaking to the wrong kind of investors in the beginning. Good relationships to have, maybe useful for us that around B or around C, but this is a certain type of investor I should have gone to initially. You know, if I had after this experience, I, I just sort of know that there are different types of investors that are going to suit you at different stages, different kinds of business. So you really just have to build a framework for who you should be approaching. And yeah, and you shouldn't rely on that. You should be able to stand alone without those investors at all. Because if you're sitting around waiting for them to create the traction for you, it's, you know, there's, there's something wrong. So what's the long-term play for Public Square? Is this something that you'd like to, you mentioned the word scalable. So I'm interested to know what does that mean? Is this a takeover the world listed on the New York Stock Exchange type of exit? Or you, what, what's the plans, the long-term goals? I think Australia is big enough. I mean, there's, there's 500,000 residential transactions in Australia per year. And if you think about it, they're all basically done transacting exactly the same way, aren't they? Yeah. 95% of them are one single owner, one single buyer, lump sum settlement on payment, and they involve a mortgage, right? I mean, we don't really even have buyer's agents here, which in my view actually make more sense than seller's agents, but 
We, it is. We, we, I'm a big believer in buyer's agents. We had Emily Wallace on a previous episode and she was amazing and that was one of the questions. In the US, that it's you get represented on both sides and here, you know, you get, you're left to do it on your own. I, I don't know. I really don't think that's the wise move from a buyer's perspective. My last question is one that I didn't have written down but you also mentioned it a few times in our conversation today. You talked about tools. Now, obviously, you know, some of the tools you used and use in your business to get it going might be very specific to you. But what are some of your favorite tools that you can share with our audience that might be something that we can sort of download, have a look at the website and have a play with these tools? Check out Airtable, airtable.com. Yeah. Haven't heard of that one. What does that do? Basically like a spreadsheet on steroids. Oh, my staff will love that. And, and we'll help you with the automations that you've been talking about. Airtable. Okay, cool. So another one? Yeah. Um, well, ChatGPT. Yeah. All the rage now for good reason. It's really good. I actually use this. Uh, it's been really, you know, it solves some Excel formulas for me that I could never solve through Google. I could never get the answer to them. I'd have to hack through it to do these really technical <laughs> formulas. Um, I was using it the other day and I, I really just gave it a narrative about what I was trying to achieve. What happens in this scenario and this and how do I reverse engineer X number? And, and I was amazed. That one answer on that, you know, one given afternoon, it already paid for itself. And my friend of mine got, I don't know if this is the right terminology, I'm not a tech person, but he, he actually got ChatGBT to do Python code. So he asked it to do stuff he gave it in code. He grabbed it, put it into his code thing. It worked. He then wrote some code that had errors in it. And he said, can you fix it? And it was like, it's just madness. So it, I think anything that can save us time as humans is great. I feel like it'll, you know, it's a bit like email though. I think we'll never, ever get time back, but and we'll just be busier and ever. But yeah, I, I've, I, we've used it a little bit here, but I like Airtable, ChatGPT. One more, any, another favorite? Extensions for ChatGPT. <laughs> oh wow! Okay. I think it's going to be a proxy for sort of other things. Everything right? that we do, it's, it's it. a proxy for creating the information, a proxy for receiving it. <laughs> I, I, <laughs> I feel like it's going to be sort of. There's so many use cases on how it's going to go in the years to come, and so many new businesses will be born on some of this new AI, and we're just in its infancy. So, look, it's been um, amazing to talk to you about technology innovation, how you've used it in your business in such an, you know, an industry that's been around for probably thousands of years uh, in which is, you know, changing ownership of property. So Dean, I want to say thank you so much. Um, I've enjoyed the chat. I love listening to you and, and your knowledge around technology and your business. Again, just want to say thank you. Absolutely. Yeah. Been really nice. Good chatting with you. This is The Bottom Line, a show designed to help Australian businesses succeed. This podcast was produced by accountancy firm Alexander Spencer. At Alexander Spencer, we've been helping business owners realise their goals since 1952. And we play a pivotal role in developing, implementing and supervising the business goals and strategies of our clients. To find out how we can help your business succeed, head to our website, alexanderspencer.com.au. To make sure you don't miss an episode of The Bottom Line, be sure to subscribe to or follow the show in your podcast app. 
And while you're there, leave us a five-star review. It really helps others find the show. I'm Savan Tuna, and we'll be back next episode with more tips to help you transform your business. And that's The Bottom Line.